Welcome to Straight Edge, the podcast. My name is Clive Allwright, and along with my amazing guests and co-hosts, we're going to be having some brutally honest and sometimes confronting conversations around all things of addictive behavior. Now, as it happens, I've been a hairdresser for 37 years, and during my career, I've met many people just like me that have also struggled in the many different areas of addiction. So our main focus of this podcast is to chat with as many people as possible from the hairdressing, barbering, and media industries, along with some pretty smart people that work in the fields of addiction to get a deeper understanding of why so many of us struggle with the balance of family, careers, health, and the day-to-day pressures of life. So if this sounds like an area you'd like to dive deeper into, make a cup of tea, sit back, and listen to Straight Edge, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Straight Edge, the podcast. My name's Clive Allright and I'm joined this morning by the wonderful co-host, Amy. How are you this morning, Amy? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on this amazing journey with you, Clive. It's a pleasure. I mean, it started off, I think, at Carl Cox um, rave <laughs> about six months ago. <laughs> I did. We did. That's how it all started. Oh, we had a conversation. so funny. That was my first sober outing to a... I don't know if it was a rave, but it was a yeah. it was a day out listening to a DJ for that I used to enjoy many many moons ago, and it was a big thing for me. And um, you, right. I was joined by Natalie, our manager from the salon, and your girlfriends, and we sat down. And I guess when you go to those things and you're sober, it starts a lot of conversations. And absolutely, and I was so um, in awe, to be honest you know, of seeing you just, you know, having a great time, enjoying yourself without having the need for alcohol. And I think that's what really stimulated our first conversation about all this. It was like, oh, what's going on? Yeah. Um, and as always, you know, it has a knock on effect because it started to trigger me and, yeah. and it starts to make people question their own relationship with, well, alcohol, you know. Yeah. Uh, but addiction, I think, itself is such a vast subject. And that's really what we're hoping to unpick on this podcast series, right? That's exactly right. I mean, it's funny because I, if you know what was going on in my head that day, it looked, it was like a duck on the lake. It was like, it looked very calm, but underneath <laughs> it was all going, ba 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 I was like, can I do this? Can I do this? And I was like, am I really enjoying myself? And, uh, but I got there, we did it, and I did have a great day. And we had a great conversation about, you know, why I don't drink and yeah. um, how I would love to do a podcast. So thank you for making this all happen. Yeah, no. And, and what's your kind of experience then with addiction? Well, it's progressive, right? So it didn't. You know, no one starts off wanting to be addicted to anything: food, sex, porn, alcohol, drugs, whatever. It's just it's a progressive thing that happens. And um, you know, with me, I just didn't. I mean, obviously, I'm English and growing up in England, the 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 pub was where you went and solved anything. If you had a you know going to a funeral, you go and drink alcohol. Going to celebrate, you drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I'm 54 years of age, and most of my younger life was spent in and around drinking. Even though I didn't grow up with parents that drank, yeah, um, and they they did, but not. I mean, then my dad never went to the pub, kind of thing, by himself. That's for sure. So you know, I, it was just something that crept up on me. And as my career blossomed, and uh, you know, I had an amazing career. I still have actually, but you know, traveling the world, doing the job that I love, it opened up so many different. You know. It was everywhere, right? And it just got the hold of me. And 
I used it as a coping mechanism. So alcohol wasn't the problem. It was the solution for me. It was how I coped, you know. If I'm going to celebrate, it was alcohol. Commiserate, it was alcohol, you know. And um, it just went up and up and up. And and then drugs got introduced to, you know, so I could cope with the drinking more. And, you know, it affected every area of my life, my business, my business partner, my wife, my children. And, you know, and I guess... I speak to so many people in this industry that have suffered with very similar things. And I think that this conversation is an important conversation that we can have. And if I had heard something like we're just about to do early on in my career, I think it would have definitely changed some of the decisions that I made. Now, I do have a lot of regrets, but I wish I'd done some things differently, but that's life, right? And I wouldn't be sitting in this podcast studio if I'd done everything perfect. That's right. <laughs> We're all human, exactly. after all. Yeah. You know, and I think there's there's a lot to be said, first of all, about your, your story. Uh, one of the things that I find most inspiring uh, to even look inwards to myself was how you tell your story. You know, it has a real impact on people. And I think that's what this podcast is all about. But also, I think as we've gone on our journey together and like unpacking yeah. all of this, it's like you mentioned a few things there that are, first of all, our industry, yeah. right? You know, I've worked in the media industry for 25 years. Yeah. Um, addiction is rife. People just don't talk about it, right? Yes. And, you know, I started as a makeup artist and a hairstylist, you know, so even though I've not been in the, the massive in the hair industry, you know, they all collide, yes. right? And and so we've been around it a lot. It's part of the culture, as you mentioned before, being British, you yeah. know, again, it's there's not much else to do. Everybody just goes to the pub or they, they live for the weekend, you know, and it's we're kind of brought up with that mentality. What? It was you know, it was really kind of only being in Australia I started to realise that you don't need to, that most people here get up really early on a Sunday morning. <laughs> they do normal <laughs> and go, things. And do normal things. Yes. And go for a swim. Yeah. And you're like, how are you doing that? Yeah. Because they just don't need to go hard, you yeah. know. Although it does happen everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it does. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, but you know, addiction is is a really fascinating thing for me. Uh, because like like you've, we've said, p first of all, people don't talk about it. But second of all, people don't believe that they are addicted to anything. That's right. And that you, was me. You always use that towards people that I've heard you to have to share your story about, like, well, try put your phone down on a weekend. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> anything. I mean, just just normal day-to-day -day stuff that you do yeah. as a little ritual to, to get through the day, whether it be smoking, vaping, you yeah. know, having a drink after work or, you know, eating a packet of Tim Tams because you're, you know, you don't want to drink or whatever. We've all got that inner voice and that's yeah. is why we do it. That's um, right. You know, and I think, let's be honest, we work in a creative industry and creatives want an outlet, right? I know myself when I would be putting shows together, alcohol, drugs, music, that, you know, it was, you'd, you'd see documentaries on artists and how they, you know, lost their mind and on whatever. And that's because we're artistic people. Most of us didn't fit in at school. We weren't academic. You know, we found ourselves in an industry where we could be creative and express that way we feel. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we found a, a, a 
a tribe of people that just introduced us to, yeah. you know, the, the next level. The next level. <laughs> you know, there, there is definitely something to be said there. And I think, you know, during this podcast series, hopefully we can unpick the the creative industry, you know, talk to some psychologists around addiction. You know, yeah. there is definitely a link and it's been proven that, you know, creative people, a high percentage of them have ADHD. Correct. ADHD is linked to addiction. We know this. And so there's more, much, there's a big, big picture here, I think. But let's start with you yeah. um, because, you know, I want everyone to know your own story and and how your life became um because you do some incredible things now to keep yourself on on a sober path and your life sure. i think has completely transformed so why don't you take us right back to the beginning sure. yeah absolutely and um thank you i mean I, I, there's three stories right there's the story that i've been thinking of all morning in yeah. my head that i've been writing down <laughs> and then there's the story i'm going to tell now yeah and then there's going to be the story that's going to be the worst one, which is going to be me critiquing it for the rest yeah. of the week and how I could have done better. So I'm going to answer your question. So uh, it started off, as we've mentioned, I grew up in England and my, I was born in, in the outskirts of London. And then my dad um, and my, my granddad worked together and they moved. we moved to Northamptonshire, which is about an hour north of London and in a very rural village. And... Um, as I mentioned, my parents didn't drink. I mean, we were, I didn't realise it at the time, but we were, we were broke. Well, we're not broke, but we were working class and my dad worked very hard and my, so did my mum. My mum worked in a shoe factory as a machinist and, you know, we, you know, my dad actually stopped smoking so I could actually get a motorbike because my dad was obsessed with motorbikes and, you know, every weekend I had this blessed childhood that I would, you know, go and race motorbikes and, um, you know, I feel sort of, as I've unpacked this sobriety thing over the last four years, it's kind of all played its part, excuse me. <clears throat> and um, so I, we grew up in this perfect family unit and uh, there's me, mum, my dad, my sister. And, uh, you know, we were, I guess, 13 to 14 were the happiest years of my life, which is unlike most stories of addiction. And I grew up in a little village with a very tight group of friends that were still very good friends today. Uh, one of which, ironically, is Sally Brooks who is the three times British hairdresser of the year. She's, you know, we all went to school together, although wow. Sally, Sally did go to a private school after, you know, she hung around with us too long. But, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, so we, we, we've got this great friendship that when we grew up. And then, then my mum died suddenly when I was nine or 18, sorry. And I didn't realise it. At, well, I did. I was, it was like the world stopped turning, to be honest with you. This mm. beautiful family unit just got destroyed and we were mm. all grieving. My sister was 16, I was 18. My dad was about 42, or I know my mum was 42, so my dad must have been about 46. And we just didn't know how to cope. And we were all, my dad was very, you know, amazing at looking after us and looking after my sister. And, you know, I at this stage I was working at, well, I, was, I started my career at Tony and Guy in Mayfair when they just had two salons, and, and that was amazing. And when my mum got sick, she was only sick for about six weeks, but I knew it was pretty bad. Because they said, you know, your mum's not got long to live. And I actually quit Tony and Guy and I went to work at a lo local salon to be close to my mum and dad. And which is where I worked with Dom Lahane, actually. He was our first apprentice that, that hosts uh, How to Cut It podcast in the UK. So it's a uh, wow. thanks, Dom. You've been an inspiration to me. Um, anyway, 
I just couldn't cope. And I didn't cry at my mum's funeral. I felt like I had to hold the family unit together. I was actually angry. I was angry at the world. I was angry at the doctors. I was like, why has this happened, you know? And it's like I say, the best way to describe it is like my life stood still and um, I was broken and I didn't, I now identify that I was probably severely depressed because everything that was close to me was gone. And then a guy I'd worked with at Tony and Guy in Mayfair had taken a job out in Hong Kong of working for an Australian hairdresser that had built this empire um, called Kim Robertson. Kim Robinson, sorry. And um, he said, Clive, I know you've been through a tough time, but this is an amazing opportunity for you. They're looking for hairdressers. You've got this Tony and Guy training and, you know, come on out. He said, it, he said, in the way he sold it to me, it was like the Beverly Hills of, of, uh, of Asia. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I got on a plane on this jumbo jet and went out to Hong Kong and I was petrified. I was a scared little boy. In fact, I still am a scared little boy. And um, I was scared of everything. Like it was... Um, how old were you then? Then I was nineteen. So yeah. it was not, like, I mean, yeah. look, that is still pretty young. Yeah, you know, like yeah. to be sent over to like a foreign land. Yeah, you know? and it was so different to yeah. what I'd, I mean, from a rural country village to wow. Beverly Hills. I landed and there was washing across the street, and it really stunk. And like it oh. was like the old Kai Tak Airport was in not like the modern one now. Wow. And we just had this. You know, we were two lads living in a company apartment to start with, and that's when I found my best friend. Like my mate Jonathan was from Essex, and he was a you know a young boxing champion and, and a hairdresser. Go figure that one out. Yeah. And he um <laughs> and they were all a mix max of people. But I started drinking, and it made the pain go away. And that's when I suffered. Well, that's when I experienced my first blackout. I wow. drank to blackout. There was a an area in Hong Kong called Lan Kwai Fong where all the pubs and bars were. And I remember waking up one morning still in a suit and just couldn't believe that I hadn't been robbed. There's obviously very little crime in Hong Kong. People just step were over you, you. You were on the street? Yeah, I was outside a bar called Scotty's and, you know... And did people just left you there? Well, I swear I'd sort of wandered off. I'm one of these people that just sort of leaves the group and then I'll go and find somewhere quietly to die, you know. And I was outside this middle of the street and people were going to work and I just sort of woke up. And I'll I'll never forget it. I had a green suit jacket on. Oh, my goodness. And um, I was like, oh, where's my wallet? Where's my wallet? Oh, I've still got my wallet. Oh, and then... Were you in shock? Well... I just kind of didn't know what was going on, you know. It mm. was like I'd, one minute I was having fun with my friends, the next minute I know I was, it was the cold heart of day and I was on the on this little bit of astroturf outside the front of this bar, Scotty's. And, and, and then it was this became this expat lifestyle. Young boys in Hong Kong working with, I mean, it was an amazing job. I worked with some incredible photographers from Paris Vogue and bits and pieces that really helped fun- and Kim was so involved with like the Paris fashion shows and stuff we it was work hard and play hard and you know there was no drugs around at that time there were but I was not interested in that at all and um and things escalated I just got used to drinking midweek like you'd never do that in a little village in England or no. well I never did at that age yeah and you know working hard and I remember we we lived in this um on an island to Discovery Bay and we used to have to catch the ferry and quite often my roommate and I would cross he'd be coming back from a club I'd be going to work or vice versa and we'd stand on the top of the ferries and hold Carlsbergs up to each other as we were you know crossing across Hong Kong Harbour you know they'd be like I'm just going over to get a shower and I'd be like I'll see you at work sort of thing it was bonkers and so that's where it all started well I think the thing is we laugh about these things right because we've 
it's something that you experience and like we're young and you don't really think anything about it no. until you wake up one day and you're 54 yeah. and you're like yeah exactly where, you know. where did this lead me exactly you know? um, but we get caught up in that lifestyle and um, and the, the company that we have you know and you know especially when you're trying to I guess avoid the pain do you think that you realised at that point you know how much you missed your mum and that that was part of it or was it a bit of an there escape there was so much going on I was so homesick right mm. I was so homesick it was like I, I didn't know where, what and then back in them days there was no internet no phones it was airmail aerograms it took three weeks to send a letter and you know I relied heavily on that that communication because phone calls cost a fortune and you probably do one a month but yeah. by that stage I was out drinking and just burying myself and um mm. You know, but still working hard. Like I was yeah. still learning stuff. I was still I will I learned a whole new style of hairdressing when I was out there that was that I didn't learn in London. And um And where know, did that lead you then? How long were you living there? I lived there for two years and then I went I met my um, my partner at the time, who was an Australian model and we went she was going to England and we I said, Right, I'm done, I'm out of here and I went back to England and I realised I went back to Tony and Guy. And I realised that in a very short space of time that it was really hard going. I had such a crazy life out in Hong Kong. That that feeling of freedom, of not having to be at family functions and the pressure was off. I could do whatever I wanted and that freedom was amazing. And it got to wintertime and my um, partner at the time, Lexi, she said, you know, I can't stand the winter in England. Let's, I'm going back to Australia. And I was like, OK, great, I'll, I'll come. And I... I was in the staff room one day and a guy that I worked with called Dean Holcomb, who ended up becoming a partner in Shibui in Melbourne, who now lives in the US, you know, we became good friends and he said, I'll come with you. And we, we came to Perth um, back in 1989. <laughs> right. And back in the day. Back in the day. 1989. Yeah. I know, I'm old. Yeah. I would have been yeah. eight, eight years old. Yeah, well, I was banging <laughs> on you've it already then. lived this whole life. Yeah, I'd lived a life, you know. And so... And Perth was just got over the, you know, just had the America's Cup and there was lots of drugs around in Australia at the t- in that part of town. And, and obviously it was the beginning of this, the ecstasy boom, the rave scene in England, the summer of love, as they call it, 1988 had just happened and it had spread to Australia very quickly. There was that whole house music thing going on, raves you know, underground parties and we would, you know, we would obsessed with things like the face magazine and street culture. And, you know, we wanted yeah. to bring that bit of London to, to our working life. And of course, that's when the whole film 24 hour party people was based. And, and we literally took that to the excess. And, and that's when I discovered my first drug, which was ecstasy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I can't tell you, it was like, I found utopia. And, you know, all that pain, all that heartache, all that insecurity just went away. And it was like, and I often spoke about this when I was on drug, on the ecstasy, that it was like getting the best Christmas present you'd ever had, like the best bike you've always wanted, that feeling you get in your stomach where you're like, my life is amazing. And that's what I became addicted to. So basically, well, that, at that point, it was living for the weekend. I couldn't wait to finish work. And, you know, for me- very minimal effort, I would take a pill, dance all night, talk shit to a bunch of strangers and just hug people. Yeah. And that's what my life did missed. And and eventually what happened is, is it, it crept up and the drinking started during the week. And, you know, I became a dad then as well. And I, my, my daughter, Jade, who's now 32, was born. Um, 
I quite often joke, which I, I shouldn't joke really, that I went to a rave and came back a dad. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, with my with my partner Lexi, but you know, it was um you know, so yeah. Does your daughter know that? Well she yes, does now. She does, she does, yes, she does. And you know, and I you know, and obviously I was a kid at the time I became I was a dad at twenty two and I didn't wow. know how to do life, right? You were twenty two. I was twenty two when I became My a dad. Goodness. And so all of us were finding wow. our way and you know and I'd look back on them days now and I feel I feel quite dreadful that you know I just couldn't cope with life and obviously my relationship with Lexi the drugs the alcohol the thing mm. took hold of me and um and then you know Tony and Guy approached me and said oh we're opening up in Sydney and and I and I and I was the dad and I had a daughter that was I think Jade was 3 or 4 at the time and um, I said, spoke to Lexi, and she said, "Look, Clive, you've never finished what you started." She goes, "And you're you're kind of dying here." And um, she said, "Take this job. Jade can always fly to to Sydney to Perth. You, I'm watching you killing yourself here. It's not good, mm. right? And you need to go." And I was like, "Oh, that, that was amazing. I'm very grateful for that." And I came and became a big part of Tony and Guy in Sydney, and artistic director worked with some incredible people like Nick Irwin and Maria Kovacs, and obviously my mentor Dennis Langford. You know, he shaped my career to become the presenter that I became, and and that led to other things. But that's when things in Sydney, Sydney in the '90s, was going bonkers. Right. And, Do you um, think it was worse than than Perth? It was much more, Perth was much more sort of, it, I was going deeper and deeper in mm. Perth. Like it was, um, I needed to just move. And I now understand it's called doing a geographical. Right. So what happens is when you things get too too heavy, when you, you know, the dealers, the, the debt, the, the remorse, the shame, the anxiety gets to a boiling point, you run. Wow. Right. And so I ran and I just made it look like on the surface I was doing this great career move, but I was struggling to stay afloat and Tony and Guy gave me that balance Tony and Guy gave me that and I was um, you know I was working in the school I was traveling I was going to New Zealand we're going to Taiwan we're going to Korea and we were doing some big things and we you know, it was a big thing Tony and Guy here in the 90s but on the weekends it was no longer so much pills it was cocaine because that's what rock stars did that's what yeah. you know creatives did and we you know that and um, we just immersed ourselves fully into that so you've left Perth You've geographically moved yourself. You're having an amazing career. I mean, your career really, you know, you could write a book about it, all the things that you've done. It's incredible, really incredible. Um, But how old were you at this stage then? I was mid-20s, so I was probably 25, 26. And, um, you know, once again, I found that freedom, you know, and uh, I I worked really hard. We all worked really hard. We would front and centre at the time in the 90s of what was really going on here in Australia along with, you know, Anthony Whitaker and, you know, Synergy and there were some incredible people that we all sort of worked with. And I need to point out as well that before the internet and before mobile phones, what we did after work was network. We went to the pub and we would talk through hair shows. We would break down haircuts. We would, it was our creative place where we would go. This happened in London. It happened in Hong Kong. It was like... It was like, instead of going home and going through reels to educate ourselves, we went and we, we spoke, we talked, we networked, we brainstormed ideas in the pub. That's where it all happened. Yeah. And so that we didn't know any different. 
and so yeah, I mean, it just we did, like you said, we didn't have phones. You weren't looking at Instagram no, Reels, you're just and talking YouTube to people, and like face to learned, face, yeah, you know? from from people. I don't know how we always to meet up because we never had a phone to connect. Yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> it was just, one of those. I'll meet you there at five fifteen, yeah. and like you just had to be yeah. there. Uh, you know, I yeah. remember even you remember you being in a bar sometimes. You get there at seven, and you think, well, they'll probably arrive about ten, but they'll get here. Yeah, you know, there was no like, where are you now? <laughs> you know, um, yeah, and that was the thing. Like in London, we always be like Susu. Tony and Guy, you know, we'd all go to the Lamb and Flag or the, you know, the Hog and the Pound, you know, at the top of South Martin Street in St Christopher's Place. That's where we, that was the hairdresser's pub, you know. And mm. when we worked in in Oxford Street in Sydney, we used to go to the Burdekin. That was across the road. And you know, I never forget when we first when uh, like when we first opened the salon, we ran the school. We used to go to the Burdekin for lunch. And, I, and have, have something to eat and have two beers and go back to work. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like, normal. Can you imagine doing yeah. that? Like, you just have, oh, have a nice bit of bowl of pasta and two beers and then we'll go back and teach. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. wow. Um, during my time in Sydney, Tony and Guy launched their own product line called TG and they asked me to become their educator for Australia. And it was basically meant every week, different state, travelling around, cutting hair, being a rock star. Yep. You know, and doing three shows a day, which meant that every week I was in a different state for three days, and I'd be doing three seminars a day in salons to to promote their products. And that got that taught. That's how I cut my teeth, becoming a presenter in small groups, and that also introduced me to frequent flyers, airport lounges. You know, I was flying around like a rock star. Wow! And I mean. It- it all sounds pretty cool, though, right? It was <laughs> amazing. When you were in your 20s, you like, know. getting flown around. And and also with the people that we worked with, for the young kids that were coming up, they were looking up at us guys, you know, with Nick and myself, and we were going to New Zealand for the weekend. We were going to Taiwan for a few days. And, you know, we did... We, we, we just thought we were amazing. And, um, you know, with that, you know, when we got home, we're like we've worked so hard we're going out like and let's just go and hit it hard and because we're we're invincible but with my time with tg that got me on the radar for an american product company called kms and then they approached me to work for them which meant leaving tony and guy which was my life um and taking a big leap and one thing led to another and the next thing you know i found myself living in la and again another geographical because i've I've now run my course with, you know, the, my circle of friends and, you know, burned some people, burned relationships and, you know, did some horrible things, you know. Did some great things, but there's a lot I wasn't proud of. And, you know, I was struggling. Um, not that that's an excuse. It was, I didn't know another way to live. And, I've, and of course, what more do you need if you've got a problem with drugs and alcohol is go to La La Land, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you that's know, where it all began. <laughs> you know, I remember going for lunch at Mel's Diner on Sunset with a guy that ran LA Models, and you know we were just doing. So, and this opened up a different game. Like, yeah, we're talking big, big budget productions, big sh- photo shoots that in excess of hundred thousand. My role of global creative director meant that I basically looked after all the countries that KMS distributed to, so Scandinavia, Latin America, Central America, Asia. And so each, instead of going to Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth, I was going to Buenos Aires, you know, Guatemala, um, sorry, Costa Rica, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Africa, Norway, you name it, I went there. Wow. Right? And my, um, because I was so good at networking, what I did was I had to build a team of, of hairdressers in each country that would become the KMS team. And I would do the photo shoots in L.A. with some incredibly talented people. 
um, some hairdressers that I'm still great friends with say from all over the world we'd fly people in from all over the world and you know we'd do these big conferences in in Las Vegas for thousands of people which I would have to headline um, you know the Renaissance Hotel in Hollywood you know where they have the Oscars I mean I've wow. had my name in lights in Times Square at the Kodak Theatre. Like, no it, way. Yeah, I mean, it was like, it was bonkers. Do I need to get your autograph now then? No, because no one knows <laughs> who I am. Because it was like, it was only there for five minutes. I was on, I was on the night after LL Cool J in Times Square. Oh. <laughs> LL Cool J. I know, LL. Wow, I got really... two L's in, all right. That was about as close as we got. But, you know, anyway, so KMS gave me an incredible career. And with that... Everyone wants to take you out after the shows. Everyone wants, you know. And my boss, Corey, who was an incredible influence in my life, he said, Clive, well, he used to introduce me on stage, and he'd go, Clive is like Clive Davis of the music industry. Put him in a room full of hairdressers, he'll come out with 10 best friends. Yeah. And them 10 best friends, he'll put them, we'll, we'll work together and we'll create something amazing. And that was what I was good at. I was great at networking. Um, in fact, Nick Irwin said to me once, he's like, Clive, because he's an incredible artistic director. He's like, you know, he comes up with a concept, but I'm like the guy that copies the Chinese handbag. Yeah. Right? You show me what we're doing, and I'll nail it, right? And I'll get up there, and I'll sell it, right? But it won't be my idea. And that was where all my insecurities came from. Because I was never, in my mind, never the guy that really could do this alone and come up with stuff. I was the guy that would have a room full of people, a team of people, and together we would create greatness. Yeah. But that's how I masked my insecurities. Right. So obviously LA opened up a different realm of cocaine, alcohol, drinking, bits and pieces. And that ran its course. And for, I was there for about eight years. And um, and, then, and I met, well, I've known my, my now wife. We'd known each other since I'd, before I went to LA. Funny enough, I did her hair for her first wedding. No. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a complicated journey. Yeah, it's but, like, you know, okay. I had to get out of there. You know, my wife and I fell in love. We were meeting up and all around the world because she works for an airline, worked well with my job. And then I just, I, then another geographical, I can't, I'm, I knew I was going to die if I stayed there because I was literally on a plane going, traveling the world every week and, um, different countries and if I didn't I needed some normality in my life and my my wife she said to me one day she goes I can't we can't continue this relationship because I'm just going to get heartbroken and I was like this is a lifeline for me and I was like she goes why I can't ask you to leave LA this you've got an amazing life here and I was like you don't understand I well I said I couldn't say this to her but I need to get out of here because you don't know the half of it and I'm dying Mm. and so I moved back to Sydney and and did she come with you at that point? No, well, I was in LA by myself. She was oh, in right. Sydney and we were just meeting up in different places every other month or whatever. And so I moved back to Sydney. She How was old a, were you at this point then? Mid-30s. So, And Jane was a single mum. And so I was like, the thought of coming to Ramwick to live with my girlfriend, single mum, <laughs> to get out of LA sounds amazing. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. And it was, you wanted I, that downtime. Well, it's like it was almost like oh, it's almost like the the facade, the mask. Like I'm just going to be someone else now, and I'm going to move to a different part of the world, and I'll stop taking drugs, I'll stop drinking, because you know I'll never do that if I'm obviously in a relationship, you know, that's a mum, mm. and and of course the cracks started creeping through. 
it wasn't long before, you know, I'd started drinking again and, you know, all those promises I'd made myself sort of went out the window. And then, and of course, it evolved. I then met my now business partner. We opened a salon. Um, Very successful salon. Still there. You know, and this was part of my makeup. It was like, right, focus heavily on work. Right, you can do this, you know, the blah blah blah, but then escape in the evening. And um, my wife fell pregnant, and um, with the, with our daughter Lulu, and that's when things took a turn. I really couldn't cope at this stage. I mean, my business partner, I mean, I, I just used when when Lulu was born, I just wouldn't go home a lot of the time. I would there's a bar next door to my salon, and I would just I just couldn't cope with being a dad. Right, and, you know, it was like I was. Was know, it the responsibility, or just the shock, or? Yeah, it's it's everything. Like I was, I think, in all honesty, I was struggling, as well with where my career was go slipping through my fingers. Right, you know, those doors that open in your twenties and thirties, they start closing, especially when you're partying like I was. Mm. And you know, I wanted to prove something to me and to other people that I'm a business owner now, and oh, I don't, I don't need that life of travelling around. And you know, but really deep down, it hurt, you know. And I was like, I just don't know what I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, yeah. And um, let's just create a distraction, and that continued um, for a while. And I would go through bouts of stopping, starting, stopping. It was a merry-go-round, revolving door, mm. and the drugs got more and more. Right. You know, with that, the debt, the, you know, the, the the physical damage I was doing to my body, I started putting on so much weight, I was blowing up like Elvis Presley, you know, <laughs> a bald Elvis, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, my, my doctor was saying to me, Clive, your body's shutting down. He said, you know, your liver's not in a good place your wow. kidneys are excreting protein you're you're on the i never forget him telling me you know you're you're a brink of having diabetes and you don't want to have diabetes type 2 he said like mm. you don't want that because with that comes a lot of he said it'll kill you and i just went whatever yeah. and um walked out had a cigarette yeah and i said i'll i'll, I'll try better but I, I thought I was invincible. I honestly believed I'd be the first person in the Met British medical lancet that you know to to do what I was doing and survive. And um, and eventually it just got. I, I was 113 kilos. I look at photos of myself back then, and I just am. I don't even know who I am. And I thought I was happy. Mm. You know, I really did think that I th- I felt like I was good looking as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are good looking. Drug, love. Drugs and alcohol. There's a terrible terrible thing. It, I st- I stopped one day and I went for twelve months off, and I now know it's called white knuckling it. And Can I ask you first what led you to that point? To a point where you even made that decision to take some proper time out? Was that the fir- was that the first time that you actually uh, committed I, to it? Yeah, and I would say, well, the first real time, and I'd go for a week. Sometimes I'd forget that I was forgetting to stop drinking. I remember listening to a thing on the radio as I was driving to the airport one day to go on a trip. And it was an ad, and it said, if you can't go three days without a drink, you may have a problem. And I thought, oh, that's, I can go three days. Of course I can. And I thought, do you know what? I'll do three days now. I'll start from now. And then, of course, I checked in. I went to the lounge, and I thought, oh, I'm not drinking. That's right. I'll drink something. I got on the plane, and I totally forgot. And I got absolutely <laughs> hammered all the way to L.A. I and I was like, I'll start tomorrow, you know. Yeah. And... And then things started escalating. Obviously, my wife, my marriage, you know... I'm just getting in deeper and deeper. She's not coping. I'm not fronting up. 
and I made a promise. I said, I'm going to stop. And I now know it's called white knuckling it. I had no idea, no skills, no tools, whatever, whatsoever to understand how to stop drinking. So I'd finished work on a Friday and this ritual that I'd had my whole life, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I never used to really go out Saturdays because I was always too broken by then. Mm. And I used to think Midsummer Murders and the Bangers and Mash was was, <laughs> was a perfect Saturday night in. And then the deep, dark blues yeah, start kicking in. You know, and then I start drinking again on Sunday because I'd, you know, I'd mow the grass and I'd feel, oh, you know, I'm great, I can do this. And then I'd mow the grass and think, oh, I'll get a bottle of gin. And then I'd get a bottle of gin and then I'd get a packet. And then you know, next thing I know, my watch would turn into a fan and it'd be Monday morning and I'd be broken again and pick myself up and go and, you know, thinking it was it was normal. But I made a promise to my wife that I'd stop, I'd stop drinking. And I did a year. But I remember Friday nights, I would go home and go to bed at seven o'clock because I was so miserable. I had mm. no idea what to do. And I'd be waking up at two in the morning um four in the morning not knowing what to do and then I discovered swimming and I would take myself off down to um what's it called that poor Prince Alfred Prince Alfred I'd walk from Kensington to those of you who are not in Sydney it's, it's about a 5k walk and I'd wait for the pool to open at 6am and I and I learned to swim properly and that became my new addiction and I got through to 12 and I imagine the money that I'm saving Right, and my sister and her, her husband and her kids, we'd all arranged to do this family get-together in Vietnam. And, my, and we'd saved all this money. My wife was really chuffed with me, you know, and I'm, I'm sober. And um, she's like, you know, you're doing amazing. And we went off on this holiday. And my brother-in-law turned up with you know, 200 duty-free cigarettes. And we were in um, Da Nang, I think it was, in this beach bar. And he just got himself a cold beer that was just like the, the frost on it. And I looked at it and I'm like, and what, what it was, I'm looking for an excuse. Yeah. I was drinking, I, I said, I'll have a fruit juice. And then I realised that the fruit juice or the what, watermelon juice, that's what I ordered. And it wasn't fresh. It was actually from a, from a can. Oh, right. And I was like, shit, that's just, sh that's shit, yeah. right? <laughs> and I'm going, oh, I'm miserable sitting here watching yeah. you drink this beer and have a fag, right? Yeah. <laughs> And then my wife walked past me and she said, Clive, you know, be kind to yourself. She said, you've done 12 months. And she said, if you want to have a drink, you're on your holidays, you've earned it. And that's all I needed. And boom. And it's not her fault. She, yeah. she didn't understand addiction no more than I did. Yeah. And I was like, she's right. I'll just drink while I'm on holiday. And then I'll go home and we'll start again. Within 24 hours, I'd been awake for 24 uh, the next 24 hours and I'd found drugs in Vietnam of all places wow and I was a mess and I thought it was funny I thought you know I, I'm, I'm having a blowout here I'm gonna get back and I'm just get my back on self back on track got back from that holiday and it didn't stop and, and I need to point out I lost so much weight in that 12 months um, I was losing weight rapidly and getting healthier because I was swimming and then it all started coming back on. Like I never forget the postman came up to me when I got back from Vietnam, and he said, "How was your holiday?" And I went, "It was good." He goes, "Geez, you packed on some beef." <laughs> and I feel like thank that's, you. That's the drink. Yeah, yeah. And then the next day, 18... also, did it, it's not just the weight. I think it's the puffiness, right? I, was tr I look like you no retain, disrespect it's like... to Carl Sanderlands, but yeah. I looked like <laughs> I, I, I actually got mistaken because my salon's in Potts Point and he's in around there. Someone shouted out to me one day, "Hey, Kyle, how are you?" And I was, no. 
Yeah, I was, I was like quite chuffed at the time. <laughs> you were like, oh, I'm famous. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, we do look a bit like Carla Jackie, don't yeah. we? <laughs> Brilliant. Where's our millions? <laughs> exactly. Um, and it went on for 18 months, two years, and it got mm. spiralled and spiralled. And I now know that that's just textbook. And it was a big hairdressing event, Hair Expo, that was on in Sydney, which is the Queen's birthday long weekend. My business partner and I were launching another another business that we had, online business, called Pillaroo. A little plug. And, um, <laughs> and I was awake for five days. And some, five days? Yeah. Someone, well, I would... Solid? Mm, pretty much. Wow. Get up in the morning, go back. And I could feel my heart, like, Ooh. pounding. And I thought I was going to drop and have a heart attack at any stage. And because it was things on in the evening, people coming from overseas, working during the day, and just pushing it too far. And I went to an industry event on the Saturday night, and and I bumped into a hairdresser that I know, that I now can thank my life for, that, that came up to me and said, I had a massive line before I went, into in the, in the Uber before I walked into this thing, I could hardly speak. My heart was just pounding, and I thought I just can't talk to people. I, I don't yeah. even. Why was I doing that? Yeah. And she came up to me. She said, "Are you okay?" And for the first time ever, I went, "No, I'm not. I'm actually dying." And she just very calmly put her hand on my shoulder, and she said, "Clive, if you need help and if you want to stop." Call me on Tuesday. I can show you a way. I can help you. And that's all I'm going to say to you right now. Don't want to ruin your night, but there's, you know, my number. Call me. And I remember, and I, and I actually wanted to burst into tears because I, I'd, I'd reached, it was like crossing the line in chariots of fire. Mm. I know I'd made the decision, but I kept going for till the Monday night and had my last drink on the Monday night of the awards. And um, actually, no, it was when I got home. I finished off a bottle of scotch after the awards and the five days of, of partying and drinking and taking drugs hit me so hard. I just was crippled. I couldn't, I, I, I pulled the blinds closed. I locked the front door. I mean, I'd done this regularly. I used to become a complete hermit and I wouldn't be able to answer my phone. I'd turn it off, put it underneath the couch and then I'd turn it on and just have the anxiety. My wife would often say to me sometimes, she'd throw the phone at me and go, I guess you better start apologising to these people, Clive. And I'd be like, I'd look at the messages and it would be like, no, what have I said? What have I done? Like, and it was, life became unmanageable. Life was unmanageable and it had been unmanageable for a long time. But that was my moment. And I called her and I was in such a state. She said, Clive, you just need to eat some food, get some sleep. You're in no fit state to go today but we'll i'll come and get you tomorrow and and i i'm not going to hound you you want to go you call me mm. and so the next day I, I plucked up the courage and said okay i need help and she took me to my first meeting 12-step meeting right and um i'm proud to say i have not had a drink or a drug since and that's four years two months wow that's incredible thank you seriously like to for you know I'm not saying that all of your journey has been, you know, you've had your ups, your downs, your ins, your outs, you're good, you're bad, you're ugly. Um, You know, your career is an incredible story. But for you to uh, share it as you do and, you know, be over four years now sober, completely sober. What? How how did you, what do you think's really helped you to stay sober? 
understanding why I did it. It was the trauma. Mm. It was the trauma of my mum dying, right? And mm. n- not, and as I said, scared little boy and just trying to survive and do this thing called life and not knowing, not having any, any guidance. And that's why I said at the beginning, if someone was to have, if I was to listen to this podcast back when I was 19, I think my decisions would be very different. Um, it's made me who I am today. But the 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 journey that I've been on, and the thing is, is as well, I need to point this out, is that when you're in that deep, and, and everyone's got their own rock bottom. Mine, that was mine. There's, there's, I didn't go to jail. I didn't, you know, I still was mar- I didn't lose my marriage. I didn't lose my business. Thankfully, not to say that you have to do all that to hit your rock bottom. There are so many braver yeah. people than me that are in recovery. That, mm-hmm. but that was my rock bottom. But I was a creature of habit. Right, I didn't know any different, and I would. I would just do the same repetitive behavior and wanting a different outcome. And when I got into recovery, I understood that I needed to learn a new way of living and I needed to be teachable. Mm. And if I couldn't be taught, I was in deep trouble and I needed to take that on board and do my best I can. And I fought it. I'm like, no, I know a better way. Yeah, you, you people, and, I'm, and I remember going to my first NA meeting and they asked me to speak, and I mean, I am horrified now, but yeah. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know what I was doing there, and I was still coming down too. Yeah. And my, I think my first words out of my mouth were, this is how much of a, of an egotistical twat I was. I was like, let me just get one thing straight, I'm nothing like you people. <laughs> I mean, and I Everyone, laugh, everyone laughed at me, like... and they were like, oh yeah, great, how much money do you owe, right? Yeah. <laughs> But I think it's that whole, you know, and we've spoke about this, obviously, prior to the podcast and everything. It's like people's perceptions of addiction are completely different to the reality. Correct. So, you know, all of us, I think, at some point think of like, let's say an alcoholic as an example, as someone unfortunately homeless, probably sitting on a park bench with a brown paper bag. And I think we've all had that as an idea or someone that, you know, wakes up in the morning and has a shot of vodka for breakfast, you know. That was never me. And that's the thing. It's like the more I hear people's stories, the more you talk to people and really look at what addiction is, it's actually none of that. It it, it can creep up on you like you said. It can be, you know, when we're going to explore this in the whole series is, you know, I'm a mum, let's say, right? I'm a yep. single mum. I worked really hard. I've worked really hard my whole life, just like you. Didn't come from a drinking family. Got myself into media, you know, creative industries. Um, Going through the divorce was extremely traumatic and triggering for me. And I see that as a reoccurring thing that comes up in people's stories as well. It's It's this moment of trauma. You know, and we've I, all got it. And exactly, and we all go through it. And I guess, is it, and this is something I'd love to unpack with a psychologist, is like, what is it that, you know, because everyone has some level of trauma, what is it that turns some people towards addictive behaviour and other people not? Yes. That's what's really fascinating. And the thing is, is, and I'm so excited to get some industry specialists, professionals on, because I'm learning every day. I don't have the solution, right? I just know that I have to stay sober for for today, for this one minute. There are many different opportunities that come up where that can change, and I need to be strong, and I need to stick with with the tools that I've learned. And I'm I'm 
I realised that it's easy for me to press the fuck it button, which then easily becomes the fuck me button. Yeah. And then I'm destroyed. <laughs> and then yeah. I'm, and I just don't... I know I've got... And I've heard this on other podcasts. I know I've got another relapse in me, but I don't think I've got another recovery. And that's mm. what... this. I look at my life now. I'm 54. And if I don't do this, my life's going to be pretty mm. unbearable. It was unbearable for 20 years, really. And I want to... My youngest daughter has seen me drinking and she's seen me sober my eldest daughter bless her heart she just got engaged the other day congratulations jade you know i want to walk her down the aisle and be sober right i might have a moment but i've yeah i've made some bad decisions which have affected my kids and my wife and people around me that have loved me and i owe this to me i owe this to them and i'm a better person without it and I have to practice the program that I'm in every day because there's always going to be a reason for me to relapse. So, you know, when shit goes bad, what better way? I don't know any different. So yeah. I've had to learn a new way of living. I've had to learn a new way to deal with life. And I've still got it going on. Like, I still have a nemesis of smoking. I didn't smoke for three years. Mm. And then I went back last year to my dad because he's got dementia, which I'm proud I got to do because I, that was all possible because I got sober. You know, I went to help my dad last year for six months. My amazing business partner and, and my manager held the business up, and um, and I'm very grateful for that. But that was all because I was sober. But I got back to England, and the minute I got back, I was like, I can't cope. I can't cope. I know I can't go to the pub. If I go in that pub, I know I'll find drugs. I know I'll find... And, and, um, and none of my family will trust me. Like none, they, the My auntie and uncle that loaned me the car were like, right, all bets are off. You're drinking again. Yeah. So what did I do? I went and bought a pack of cigarettes because I want to be that. I want to feel like a naughty boy. Yeah. But it's the one thing I can do when. It, but it's not going to be the the impact that I have from drinking and taking drugs. It's just and it and it drives me nuts. So what other things do you do? I mean, I know you've mentioned you know your your kind of first introduction into a, into a program. Yeah. Um. But there's there's other various things because surely like it's. A day-to-day struggle, you know, and it, so it is. surely we, we need. What is it that you do need? <laughs> well, I tell you what, you don't need, and that's the, the group of people that you used to hang out and party with that you think are your friends. That you know, some of them have been amazing for me, and they've been so supportive. In fact, they actually tried to inter- have an intervention with me many times because they were worried I was going to die. Those people mm. are just beautiful people that are supportive of me, and um, but then I've got a selection of friends that I haven't heard from them since I've stopped drinking and that's okay yeah um, and that's because they've probably got their own shit going on that's not what people think of me is none of my business right I got to focus on me and um, you know I, as I mentioned I do swimming I, st- I do ocean swimming I have to find a new way to live I have to you know reclaim Sundays you know I I just wake up used to wake up and I used to miss Sundays in fact I was so much more comfortable in a flat in Surrey Hills on a, on a Sunday with the curtains drawn, with a bunch of strangers sniffing gear and talking shit because I felt like a big man down in the sewer because mm. I was like, oh, I've done this, I've done that. But the reality was my career was slipping through my fingers. Mm. I never went to the beach. I was like, that was for Aussies that knew how to... I was petrified of the surf. Yeah. You know, I now go... There I go again. And that I now go out into the ocean... And that's my fear. That's like, 
the same kind of adrenaline thing that I used to get when I was partying or whatever come out of there and I feel I feel reborn mm. and the fact that I've not been eaten by a shark as well yeah. is a, is a, <laughs> I'm alive. You I'm know, still alive. I'm English. I never learnt to swim. <laughs> Going out in the ocean, you forget it. Like that was never a thing. Never. I tell. I, I try and tell people this all the time. Like living here for 13 years. I know you've been here for much longer, but you know, it still scares me. I still feel like I need to learn how to swim properly because you. I did learn how to swim at school, but it's like breaststroke. Yeah, this is this is <laughs> like, a this is a different like, game. That ain't gonna hold I'd, up I'd in never those been, waves. No, I'd never been in the ocean. At, in past a depth that I couldn't touch the ground. Yeah, same. Until five years ago. Yeah, see, that still freaks me out. So, that still freaks me out. But I do think there is something about that sense of being in the vast ocean. You know, I've just read a book recently, I don't know if you've heard of it, called Phosphorence. No. Um, and it, it's exactly what she writes about. It's about finding those moments of awe um, in life that, that that make you feel alive. So, for example, a sunrise, yes. watching the sun coming up over the ocean, um, swimming. Her thing was swimming deep in the ocean, yeah. being scared, yeah. but it giving you this exhilarance of, of life. Like you feel everything in, in your body alive and making sure that you have those those moments and continue to have those moments to give you some sense of perspective and that was her you know nothing to do with addiction but yeah I get it I feel like that's it's exactly what it is I mean that, people yeah. say to me are you sure you can't drink and I'm, I haven't given anything up I've got everything back yeah I can't tell you the thousands of sunrises I watched when I was on drugs yeah and I thought it was spiritual yeah right? but nothing compares to I get up now at 5 30 on the weekend and the first thing I do is call my dad and in in the UK, but then I go to the ocean mm. and I I swim in that ocean. I feel vulnerable. It's there's a thing I've learned in the twelve step program, and that's about having a higher power. My higher power is the ocean, really. In some respects, I feel like I've got a few. My mum being one, she's my spirit guide. But I just get in. I go to Wiley's ocean baths a lot, and I just sit there, and it's it's a very happy place for me. And I'm not. It just helps me. Okay, this is what we're going to unpack. It's not about the addiction. It's about the voice in your head that you have that tells you. The one that used to tell me that I was never good enough and this now tells me, or, or the one that used to say to me, Clive, go and have a drink. You can do it. No, you deserve it. You work hard. Now turns around on me and says, you, you're not in the, sa- the right house you need to be in. You're not driving the right car. Your career's not gone in the way you were. You know, you're not skinny like you wanted to be. You know, you still got 10 kilos to lose. That voice is so fucking loud. Yeah. And by doing what I do enables me to turn the volume down. Yeah. And I can focus on life again without listening to that. That that addiction is doing press ups in the corner as I'm speaking right now. Yeah. Waiting for me to go, Oh, oh. bit nervous after the podcast, are you yeah. Kat? <laughs> Let me just fuck with your head for the next ten days until you do the next one and then you know what? Maybe you should have a drink to get yeah. over it. That's what yeah. this shit's about. Yeah. Get a, have a drink to get over it, or you did really well. Celebrate it. Yeah. You know, like there's always a reason. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, I think it'll be really interesting to also look at that kind of, um, you know, because 
there's this whole sober curious community that's exploding right now across the world. It's I think more and more people are talking about addiction, yeah. talking about how it manifests in completely different ways. You know, um, I follow a lady who's based over in Perth. Um, her name's Sarah, and she does a lot of work around grey area drinking. And that yeah. moment of you going, am I am I drinking too much? You know, and like, you know, mummy wine culture and all of that kind of stuff, how it culturally there's a lot of things that are that we're exposed to that make us more vulnerable and we want to escape instead that we don't live in a society really where we're supported to face problems we're supported to escape. So it's yeah. like, oh, you know what? You've worked really hard. You're a working mom. You know what you should do now? Go home and have a glass, a glass of wine. Yeah. But we all know that, that glass leads to a bowl yeah. and then the next bowl. And, you know, and it kind of, that's where the gray area starts. Or is it addiction? I saw, um, did you know Sober Dave, which is an amazing podcast? Yes. Sober Dave. He's um, amazing, Sober he put Dave. He a post up, because it's currently right now, we've just had the final of the Women's World Cup. Yes. And he put a post up yesterday saying, I can't believe that all I read about is where the pub opening times to go and watch the game, but no one's really talking about the actual game and how no. amazing they've got no. to get to that point. Exactly. It's where you can go and buy alcohol to to to, yeah, to, to, to get celebrate through it. You can't, or whatever. I mean, yeah. I would have never, I would have never gone to watch a sporting event without getting mm. absolutely mm. wasted. Yeah. So it's learning a new way to live, and you know there are so many amazing podcasts. Janie Lee Grace, The Sober Club, The Menace to Sobriety, uh, out of the UK with Kirk and Daniel, a- amazing. There's some brilliant podcasts mm. out there. And, um, but it's not going to be as amazing as this yeah, one. Yeah, you know, that's it. <laughs> it's all fun. So it's fun now, <clears throat> yeah. but it wasn't for a long time, and yeah. that's why we're doing this. Absolutely. Raising so, awareness, you know, yeah. sharing your incredible stories and, and stories of all of the amazing guests and co-hosts that we've got coming up. I'm excited. Yeah. It's you should be, be honestly, from, from my heart to yours, like, you know, your, your story really impacted me personally thank you before we even did this podcast and i think you're amazing thank you likewise to to get where you are and done all the things and have still an amazing community of people that really love you around you they've got your back yeah thank you i mean i'm lucky i'm very thankful to be alive and the support of my my beautiful wife and family and bits and pieces but as i mentioned in this podcast I work better in a team mm. and I network with people and here we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we so, are right here. No. I'm exactly the same. My story's not too dissimilar, but we'll get to that. I love it. Um, great. Well, that's Thank a wrap on, on episode one. That's the, best, that's the worst one over. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. so much better talking to other people now. Now you can breathe. <laughs> I can breathe. Yes. I guess we better go and record the intro. Yes, we better. <laughs> Thanks to everyone for listening. Thank Make you. sure that you follow us on Instagram, Facebook. We're out there. Um, and we can't wait for you to join us on the rest of this incredible journey. Thank you.